Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are uh, continuing our look today at Matthew 4. We should finish the chapter today. Um, and, and so what we've seen so far in, in the gospel is you know, obviously the birth of Jesus, and then we get um, all the way skip forward to his baptism, the temptations in the wilderness, and then the beginning of his ministry after the arrest of John. So here's where we are today. Jesus is going to call his first disciples. So remember yesterday what we saw was Jesus withdrew up into the region of the Galilee, which was north of of Jerusalem, after the arrest of John, because um, the time was not right to provoke a a scene, (laughs) let's say, in Jerusalem. So So he's there he begins to preach, and the, his, the beginning of his mis- message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, prepare yourselves for the coming of the king. So while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. In both cases, what we can assume is that there was a there was some knowledge uh, uh, of Jesus in this region. I mean, he had lived there for a very long time, about thirty years at the time uh, that we that we see here today, and so there would have been a lot of talk about it. And we know from other gospels that there was a, a messianic expectation among some, and that these men were those who were kind of looking for the coming of Messiah. They had high expectations, and so they, they surely had heard about Jesus's birth in this region. That would have been something you probably would have heard about. You would have certainly known who John the Baptist was and known about his birth story, and then also you would have probably heard about what happened at the baptism of Jesus. There would have been a buzz in this area, in this region, because he was sort of a local boy. So there would have been a, a lot going on there, and, and although we're not told that he's done anything at this point, and that's the reason the Gospel of Thomas exists, which is not a gospel at all. Uh, it's an apocryphal account of Jesus' early years. It, it, it's born out of the desire to fill in blanks, and, and so there's no reason to accept it into the canon of Scripture. Nobody ever did. Nobody, even around the time it was written, nobody thought it was authentic. Nobody thought that it was something that should be included in, um, in the Bible. And so it, it's a silly thing when, when scholars today argue for the Gospel of Thomas because nobody anywhere ever thought it belonged in the canon of Scripture. Nobody believed that it was written by Thomas. Nobody believed anything about it at all except for it was this thing that was cooked up to, um, to fill in some blanks because we know so little about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. So what we can say, though, is there had to have been a reason that Peter and Andrew, James and John immediately leave their nets, leave their, their professions and everything else behind, and go follow after Jesus at his call. Um, these would have been guys who would have been probably around his age um, or, or possibly younger. We have no earthly idea, but it, but it seems likely that they would have been closer to his age um, because 30 was thought to be the time when you entered true manhood. 
I mean, at, you, you got your bar mitzvah at 13, which meant that you were responsible for the law and that you were an independent human being. Now, no, no longer dependent on your parents for understanding because you'd proven in that service that you had the ability to read the law for yourself. Therefore, you're now responsible for it. And it, as it was understood about male children that until the time they were 13, until the time of their bar mitzvah, if they were able to do it, then then sins that they committed was were actually attributable to the father. So it'd be a great day in the life of a of a man when his son became responsible for the Torah on his own. So, but but then, full manhood, adulthood wasn't thought to be um, achieved until you're thirty years old. And so it's likely that Jesus called these guys. But the other thing to know about him is, is that they would have been the ones who who weren't considered the best and the brightest along the way, as far as rabbinic scholarship is concerned, because the rabbis tended to choose the best and brightest. To, at least in, in the rabbinic schools, to be their disciples. And so we know these guys had been sort of passed over at some level as disciples, and, and now they're working, uh, plying trades as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And so when Jesus comes by, though, and he calls them and he makes the offer, I will make you fishers of men, they respond immediately, leave everything else behind and go after him. And, and, and it's and from our perspective, they're the model disciples. I'm not telling you that you need to leave everything else behind and go and follow Jesus, um, that, that he's calling you to some sort of full-time ministry career or whatever. You don't need to do that, uh, unless he is. If he's calling you to do that, then you should do it. Um, but if not, it's they're the model disciples in that they count everything else as less than the opportunity to follow Jesus. And we need to have that same basic attitude, too. We need to get our priorities right by, by determining exactly what he says, that the kingdom of heaven is like you know, the, the pearl of great price. It's like the treasure in a field. It's like all these other things that, that, that we need to be devoted first and foremost to the kingdom of God. We need to see it as of surpassing worth and value in a way that everything else becomes insignificant. When Jesus says things like, you've got to hate your mother, brothers, sisters, all that— um, father too. And it, it, when he says that, what he's saying is, is that in comparison to your commitment to the kingdom, everything else might actually kind of look like you don't care very much about it, that you hate it. And so that's what he's calling you to. He's calling you to value something else, his kingdom, more than everything else. And, and James and John and Peter and Andrew here show that, that they are indeed true seekers, that, that when they find the thing they're looking for, that they, they sell everything, leave it behind, and chase after it. It's the same thing that you don't see with the rich young ruler when Jesus confronts him with the possibility of selling everything he has and giving it to the poor and coming and following him. He's not willing to do that because he sees the kingdom that he has as of greater value than the kingdom that he had asked the question about. What, what, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Well, the kingdom, you got to give up the kingdom you have. Whatever that kingdom is, for him, he was a wealthy man, and so he was not willing to give that up. He valued the kingdom in, in hand more than the one in the bush, as it were. Uh, he wanted to know, what do I have to do to have it all? And Jesus says, well, you can't have it all. You can have one or the other. And, and it's just something C.S. Lewis talks about when he says that— um, 
that if you if you set the kingdom first, then you can have the world thrown in. But if you choose the world, then you end up with neither. And so that's we see them as extraordinary models of discipleship here, and, and truly they are. They saw something, the Holy Spirit moved in them, and they decided to forsake everything and follow after Jesus because they, they, it's, a, it's the message that they're sending here is, we believe you and we believe in you. And so they, they follow after Jesus. <clears throat> and then as he, after he calls them, he went through all Galilee, that's a region. The, so the region of Galilee includes towns like Capernaum and all the others that we hear about in the, um, in the scriptures. So he goes through that region, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's bringing the kingdom by healing diseases and afflictions. So he's authenticating the word that he preaches but doing these works that would show that, that the kingdom of God has come upon them and come among them. Because he's leaving in his wake healing and wholeness. And so the, the kingdom is demonstrated, but it's, it's preached in words, but demonstrated in power, which is exactly what Paul says happens in uh, Corinth when he was there. Paul says that's exactly what happened, that it came in power and great glory. And, and it's important, I believe, I've seen it, you know. Uh, so I believe that the, the important thing, the thing that will really attract crowds is the authentication of the gospel, that it's true and that it has power. It's, I think those things are truly important. I've been there, done that, seen that. And I've seen that, that where people are being healed and that can mean lives being changed, people repenting of their sins and turning away truly from that, not accepting Christ as an, as an addition to your life, but, but actually literally being changed from the inside out. That's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle when somebody comes to the place where they can look at themselves and see that what I am is not what I was created to be, the way I'm living is not... Um, the way that God would have me live, and therefore I have the ability to change, not because I have strengthened myself, because I've proven, based on the way I've lived, that I don't have the strength, nor did I have the desire to change. And now, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I, I have power to overcome these things. So it's that kind of healing is important as well. I'm not denying that as a miracle either. But what I'm also saying is, is there's no more powerful proclamation and nothing more powerful in attracting people to, to um, the kingdom than when they see that it actually has something other than just a head game involved. I've seen, you know, crowds of people come for healing services, and I've seen people healed, and I've seen people's lives changed because they know that someone was healed. You know, the, the power in my life today to be honest with you, it, it has to do with God raising Will from the dead in the hospital. Nobody thought that he was going to live, and God did a, a miracle and healed him. And everybody in the hospital knew that. People from the, who were there in the emergency room when he came in came to the room after he regained consciousness and said, I just had to come and see this. We never see anything like this. And I'm thrilled that God gave me the, the ability the day after he fell, 
to speak to the doctors and nurses as they went about their interdisciplinary rounds. And I was able to say to them, I don't know what you believe. I have no earthly idea, but we believe in the power of prayer. There are tens of thousands of people all across the world praying for my son. And if you want him to pray for you by name, just come and tell me and we'll do that. But but I know what you say. I know what you believe as, as physicians and, and uh, nurses and all that. But I, but I believe in something else. I believe God's spoken here and God's going to do something. And he did. And the power of that is is an enormous thing. It's a witness, and it was witness not just to them. It was a witness to people who prayed. It was a witness to the people who followed that journey on Facebook with us. The fact that we lost him a year later doesn't diminish God's power, doesn't diminish the reality of that miracle. It's, it, it, it's still a great and incredible joy in our lives that God gave us our son back for a year. And so that that it's important for our faith, and it's important to draw people to the faith to, to see these kinds of miracles happen. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. So it's not just in the Galilee. It's, it's north and east of the Galilee that includes Syria, which was a Roman province and region. So it's, it, his fame went beyond Galilee all the way into Syria. And, and when, when all the places Matthew is going to mention here are places that are similar to Galilee in the sense that they're mixed populations. So you've got multiple religions being practiced there and and multiple schools of thought. So where this is going is spreads throughout all Syria. It's where Christians are, including one of those places is Antioch. I mean, not where Christians are, where Jews are, but, but Antioch is one of those places, and Antioch is the place to whom we believe Matthew's gospel is written is to the Christian church there in Antioch. It's the first place Paul went after his conversion because Barnabas goes there, starts ministering there, and says, we need help. And he says, let me go get Paul. And he brings him up there. So that's in Syria. <clears throat> so in the, so they, fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So what, what's attracting them has a lot to do with what he's doing. So he's authenticating the power of the gospel and the truth of the message by the works that he's doing, which is exactly the kind of works Messiah was intended to do and prophesied to do by Isaiah. So Jesus is fulfilling in doing these things. He's fulfilling those prophetic words. And Matthew here is just simply taken for granted that his audience knows that this is fulfillment of that prophecy. He didn't even have to tell you what that is. But the reason he lists these things is because they are fulfillment of specific prophecies. That Messiah will do these things. And so that's the reason Matthew's telling us this. So right from the start of this, there's a proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom in word and in deed. And, and it, it's attracting people, and his fame is going throughout all the regions. Hey, you, there's a guy there who's doing healing in the name of God. And so they begin to bring people to him. And then great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis means ten cities. And one of those is Laodicea. And that's one of the places that Paul addresses, or not Paul, sorry, John addresses, or, or, or actually it's, it's the risen Lord addressing them in the book of the Revelation. And Laodicea is a place that 
that we we should know some things about because it's not good. <laughs> um, but all these places are have to do with um, Paul goes there into this area as well, by the way. And so we, we see this this powerful movement of God going on, and it's attracting people everywhere he goes. And so who is following him? I saw recently a guy posted something on um, on Twitter, and this guy's very fam- famous, familiar Christian leader, and he posted something about Jesus' message reaching um, um, non-believers or, or uh, people who weren't very interested in the message, and he contrasts that with today when he says that message is only reaching people who, who, who are already believers, and we need to adapt the message, was his point. Jesus didn't adapt the message. The message was authenticated, and people were drawn to it. People began to follow him because they were truly seekers, and they saw in Jesus, in the words that he said and the things that he did, they, they saw this in him, and so they were attracted to him. But this church in Laodicea is written this, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I cancel, counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and a salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. I mean, Jesus, he hits the Laodiceans right between the eyes. <clears throat> the risen Lord does in that passage in Revelation and says, you, you can't be lukewarm. I'm afraid, my friends, that that, that describes much, much, much of the church in America today that that would be the message written to a lot of the church. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. And, and that would be sort of a symptom that that Jews in Jerusalem would think would be true of all the region where we're described here where Jesus is. In all these places, there are Jews there, but, but the, the thought from Jerusalem would be, well, they've assimilated themselves into Greco-Roman culture more than they are distinctly now Jewish. And then, like I said, that other group out in the wilderness looks at the ones who are looking down on the Galileans, and they're looking down on the ones in Jerusalem and Judea who are looking down on the Galileans. So there's always a more pure sect, and I'm not claiming to be more pure than anybody else. I don't make that claim at all. Um, I'm just saying that I think we have we have a problem in America in in the church today that we are lukewarm, and that's the reason the 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 country is where it is. We as Christians haven't stood with God the way we should have. So great crowds followed from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So you, you can make a big circle here starting roughly around the Sea of Galilee. If you just drew a circle there on the map, that's what you would find is people within that circle are coming. And so it's not all the people, obviously, from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan and from Galilee and the Decapolis. But what we're told is large crowds, great crowds are following him in this area. And it has as much to do with the proclamation, the message, as it does the works that he's doing that authenticate that message. And I think that's one of the things that the writer that I told you about the, that put, posted that tweet, which was just not true, um, that, that it, it was not attracting irreligious people. It was attracting people that people from the South would have thought were irreligious uh, in comparison to themselves. But these people were Jews, 
and that's who's coming, Jews from this sort of diaspora that's, that exists up in that region, but then also it includes people from Jerusalem and Judea. So, so this fame had spread, and, and now Jews are coming from the, the, that big circle of the diaspora and also from Jerusalem and Judea, and then even further out from beyond the Jordan because, in my mind, of the works Jesus was doing. It, it had more to do with the works than the message, but the works were there not as standalones. They were there to authenticate both the message and the messenger. And I think what we need to pray in the church, we want revival. We need to pray, like I said yesterday, for repentance to come on the church. And then what we need to do is pray that God would accompany the proclamation of his message with power and with signs. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.